KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. We sat down and talked, and she said, Okay, I got this opportunity to be a second assistant. It's not full time, and it pays about $5,000. My oldest brother was beside himself. You have a master's degree. You're going to do what? <laughs> I remember thinking, you know, I hit the I hit the mother load. Uh, I'm doing this thing. And our guest this week is Cheryl Reeve, head coach and GM of the WNBA's Minnesota Lynx, a native of South Jersey and a LaSalle University product. Reeve has led the Lynx to four WNBA titles in her dozen years with the organization. And Cheryl, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Oh, it's so good to be with you, Matt. Uh, you know, kind of back to my South Jersey area roots and Uh, Happy to have a conversation. So as we are talking uh, in mid to late October season for the WNBA just wrapped up, I'm curious, how long does it take you to kind of process a season, kind of, uh, you know, decompress and get ready to get back on the horse for the next season? Well, I would say this year was was a little bit different uh, than in the the, the past uh, uh, eleven years as the season ended, uh, in that I felt like it was really important um, that I do something that I haven't done in a while, which is was kind of sort of shut down. And um, you know, what exactly does that mean? I, I can never completely shut down. I've I've watched video, I've looked at free agency, <laughs> I've done all those things, and uh, but little less of getting out and doing appearances. Uh, I have done some interviews, but I've just really kind of taken a step back and said, look, I need a little bit of time before I kind of get full throttle again. Uh, you know, what's changed through the years in the WNBA is the off season. Uh, when I got in the league in, in 2000, uh, all the way to when I became head coach in 2010, you know, the, the off seasons were, you know, sort of slow and you know, a little bit depressing, not a lot to do. And, it's just changed so much. I don't know, you know, it's, I live in market, you know, that maybe that's a big difference. Whereas in those other, other 10 years, I uh, was not in market. And so that might have something to do with it. You're in market. So you're in demand. A lot of the players aren't there. So typically the coaches are asked to do some things to keep the team relevant in the off season. And, uh, and then, you know, taking on the role of general manager probably uh, has added quite a bit to it in that there's just so much preparation that goes into you know, being ready for free agency when it starts in January and then certainly decision making as it pertains to the draft uh, when it hits in April and and then just following following all the overseas play. So there's a lot more to do. There's a lot more ways to stay connected uh, to players, which we didn't have when I first got in the league. And uh, a lot a lot has changed. But um, decompressing is it's a hard word for me, um, you know, and that's relative. I think for some people that means going somewhere and doing nothing and never thinking about <laughs> their job. Uh, that That's not the case. Uh, I have a hard time with that. How difficult, or not maybe not difficult, how much of a challenge is the dual role of coach and GM? Did it take a while to kind of find your, find your pace, find your, your balance to, to, to how much time you spent on each? You know, I was lucky in that um, when I came here to Minnesota in, in 2010, we had a general manager by the name of Roger Griffith. Uh, he was also the executive vice president of the entire company and then served as general manager for the Lynx. And uh, Roger was pretty collaborative. Uh, and I've always been somebody that, you know, I, I really like the draft. I really like free agency and I really like noodling on, you know, transactions and, 
And so I think because of that, you know, I, I, I was a part of all the processes. And, and so when it came time, when, when Roger stepped away and, um, you know, I, I, I stepped in, it was an easy transition. And I really spend probably the same amount of time. The, the biggest difference is in season. Uh, the fact that I have to worry about when I have, you know, an injury that puts us, you know, below a certain number on the roster and I got to figure out a replacement contract. Things like that, when you have to be uh, general managing in the season, that's a little bit rough because uh, I'd really like to focus on the X's and O's and, you know, preparation for our next opponent. And so when you're splitting your time there, that's probably the most difficult uh, balance. But uh, I would say the way that our league is set up, that the off season, you know, there, there's time for these sorts of things. I do, you know, scouting, valuations, et cetera, our staff does. Whereas in the NBA, uh, the college season happens during their season where the European season happens during their season where, you know, we're opposite. And, and so, you know, we, we actually have the time to do those things. So that's not as hard in the off season. Uh, some general managers have a hard time, maybe, you know, being a general manager, making tough decisions with regard to contracts. Um, maybe a player didn't get as much money as they wanted to get. Now they're, you know, feeling some kind of way and you got to coach them. I've just never had that situation. Um, you know, I, I think communication resolves a lot of those things. Um, if you're up front and straightforward, they tend to work themselves out, but, but I'd say overall, it's, it's, it's not that difficult of a, of a balance, uh, other than if you have problems during the season. So let's talk about your life in basketball. When you were growing up in South Jersey, was basketball number one on the list all the time, or were you a kid that played whatever was in season? You know, I was very fortunate. Uh, so my dad was in the Air Force. We moved around only a little bit. I, I started my basketball career down in Warner Robins, Georgia. Uh, I was actually, as a youngster, uh, growing up in Omaha, Nebraska, where I was born the first nine or ten years of my life, uh, I actually was really more into baseball and then uh, turned softball. Did a lot of traveling uh, with that sport. I didn't get into basketball until I believe it was the seventh grade. Uh, coach Hall was my first coach. Um, and I remember uh, I liked basketball, but my my first love uh, was being on the diamond. Uh, and then that changed when I got to high school. I was very, very fortunate to have a high school coach, Dawn Schilling, uh, who is the spouse of John uh, Bunting. Um, and so I guess I should say Dawn Bunting now uh, in that she coached both basketball and softball and I played both, uh, in high school. But what she was really good about was the recognition of perhaps a future in one of the sports. And she said to me, you're probably more talented, uh, in softball. Um, but basketball, there's probably gonna be more opportunities for you at that time in, in the mid eighties, uh, from a scholarship opportunity, there was more, there was more in basketball. And, uh, and I, I thought that was really helpful to me. Um, I tried to play both when I got to college. I went to LaSalle University and uh, I only played the, in my freshman year. I did both. Speedy Mars was my coach uh, in my in my freshman and sophomore years. And then John Miller for my remaining two. Uh, but I wasn't able to kind of continue with it. And frankly, uh, you know, the game sort of passed me by. Uh, I wasn't as good when I got to be that age uh, in softball. And, you know, I actually, you know, had had more opportunities for a full ride and uh, and had a decent basketball career at LaSalle. And, uh, so I was fortunate and that that was my path. And, and then from there, I just didn't want to be done with basketball. Didn't want to go overseas and, and do that. I was more of a homebody. And, uh, and then it led me right into coaching. 
What was Speedy Morris like as a coach? <laughs> exactly what, what you've heard. Um, you know, I, I always say I, I'm unfortunately I'm the I'm the subject of a of a of a, a long told story about um, my first my first season uh, as a freshman. Uh, I, I actually had the opportunity um, to start because the senior Gina Tobin was injured and um, I probably wasn't ready. Uh, Speedy was, you know, obviously really demanding and we're down at Delaware and my first game where, you know, LaSalle versus Delaware and Delaware was in this zone, a two, three zone, and they weren't guarding me at the top and they kind of spread out on the wings. And I just repeatedly was taking turns on which side I threw to and turning the ball over, uh, ended up with nine turnovers. Uh, Speedy finally had enough and, and sat me down and, and the, the, the story, and I've actually recently told uh, our players this story. Uh, I, I began to cry and uh, Speedy turned and looked at me and he said, you're crying. You're crying. I should be crying. And uh, so that became like a, you know, kind of a, a told story throughout the recruiting tra- trails for many, many years. And I'd meet people and they go, oh, you're you're that player <laughs> that that because John Miller would go around telling that story because John Miller was in the stands, uh, you know, just a couple seats behind uh, and, and watch the whole thing. And, and uh, so Speedy was really, uh, really a great coach for me because my dad coached me similarly in that he was, he was, um, he expected a lot of me, you know, I, I, I think it's how I coach now, you know, you get what you accept. And, and, uh, I think my dad and, and Speedy were the types of coaches I needed. I needed to be told I'm, I'm a little more self-deprecating. I, I don't mind being told I'm not very good. Uh, you know, it, it motivated me and, and, uh, you know, so I, I enjoyed my, it was only two seasons with Speedy, but they were two of the best years in the history of LaSalle women's basketball. Uh, and I think it helped shape me uh, as far as the player that I became uh, and who I am today. That game at Delaware aside, when you look at your <laughs> career at LaSalle, what are some other memories that come racing back? Oh, great memories. Um, you know, just how good we were, you know, I, I think the, we averaged, you know, I think it was like 22 wins. Uh, we were in the NCAA tournament. Uh, and those are the things that, that I remember the most, just the success, uh, how speedy treated us. Um, you know, he had a really good following. And, and so we felt really special uh, and important. And, and, you know, there were great times. You don't know it at the time, um, you know, how good you are and your place in, in that uh, program's history, but some of the best years ever. And then John Miller took over in similar, similar success. And so uh, prior to Speedy's arrival, uh, and I was actually recruited by Kevin Gallagher um, and, and, you know, uh, Speedy was able to, uh, you know, kind of come in and take over the program. They were 11 and 18, I believe the year before Speedy got there and then before my freshman year, and then, you know, four years of great success. And you know, I remember, you know, diff- just different tournaments that we went to in Florida and, and having success and having fun. I just, I loved every bit of it. You know, I, we ran the flex quite a bit. I sure missed that. Every once in a while as a coach, I go, why in the hell are we not running that? It was such an easy offense. It was so hard to guard. Uh, I remember great matchups uh, in the big five, um, you know, St. Joe's in particular, you know, that was, uh, you know, some, some great memories of how hard the games were. Debbie Black, someone like that, that, that turned, you know, went and played in the WNBA. And I tell people I played against Debbie Black and had a hard time bringing the ball up the floor against Debbie Black, just like everybody did in the WNBA. So just great memories. Um, and they're very, very vivid, even though it was it was quite long ago. And 
Um, but more than anything, what I remember is just being challenged uh, and then just really loving, loving showing up every day and practicing. And, and that's what I note with our teams today that, you know, if you don't have that, that joy of competing with and for each other, it's hard to reach a certain level of success. And I always, you know, I always go back to those days and remember that. And, and we try to have the same things um, that, that we experienced then. I try to have the same thing in Minnesota. It's interesting. You mentioned you were recruited by one coach, you start your career for another, and you finish your career for a third. Was that difficult, or was it just you just looked at it like, hey, this is life? I think a lot of kids, you know, it might be three different personalities, three different styles. Uh, they might not be able to cope, but obviously with you, 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 it, you were able to thrive. Yeah, you know, I think at that age, you don't really know. I think about when I, you know, when I, when I know what exists today and the AAUs and the decision-making around college and how early some of these things are being decided. And I, I just think, gosh, I don't know if I was just super young and green, but it, it just, um, it, it, it didn't, it was one of those things that coaching change happened. I don't really know if I knew what to think about it. Um, I just know that um, for me, it worked out. And, and so maybe sometimes when you're recruited by one coach and there's a change that maybe the vision that that coach has for you, um, you know, isn't the same as when you were recruited. I get that that could be a challenge, but it just never happened for me. Uh, I do remember being very, very disappointed when, when Speedy uh, made the move over to the men's program. Uh, and then I thought, gosh, how naive were we at, at that age that um, of course that was a setup for him to, you know, to get the men's job to go over for lefty Irvin. I know a lot more now than what we knew then, but I look back and I go, that whole thing was planned, <laughs> you know, and it kind of, uh, I, I enjoyed the time that we had, um, with Speedy and, and I'm very, very thankful for it. And then there's times I'm a little irritated, you know, that, that, uh, the women's program was used in that way. Uh, again, knowing a lot more now, very, very fortunate that John Miller was the successor. Now, John, uh, Co- coach Miller was very, very different than Speedy. He was a far more patient coach. Um, and, and there were times I wanted him to yell at me, you know, like, don't accept that from me, you know? Uh, and so it kind of, you know, it showed me that there's two different ways to be successful. And the best thing that John Miller ever taught me, I remember, uh, he hired me as a graduate assistant. I'm so thankful for that. And I remember standing up there with John while, you know, we're going through possessions of, you know, offense or defense, we're in the half court and, you know, these are players I played with and, and John would be really, really patient when maybe there was a mistake made or, and I, you know, I look at him like, how, like, why yell at her, you know, get on her. And, and he turned to me and he said, Cheryl, your, your box is about this big. And it was a really tight box what he made with his hands. And he goes, and you'll see as a coach and in life, that box is going to have to get bigger. It's going to have to expand as far as what, you know, what you accept or how you handle those things. It was tremendous advice. I had no idea what the hell he meant uh, when I was 22. I had no idea. And then you get into coaching and you become a head coach and you start to realize that's exactly what he meant. (laughs) Uh, So I think about my four years at LaSalle with Speedy, with John, uh, so many lessons that I learned that that helped me uh, along along my coaching journey. So you mentioned you get hired as a graduate assistant. I, I guess my first question, I'm always curious about this. And you mentioned you played with a lot of the kids you're now coaching. How tough is that just almost from a, a human, a social standpoint that last month, these, you know, these women were your teammates, you were 
on a level playing field and now you're in a position of authority the next month was it difficult to adjust to you know it wasn't for me um you know because i i wasn't actually a terribly social uh person so in terms of that being of the similar age and having similar interests um i was kind of odd that way i i didn't you know, I, I didn't enjoy the the partying and, and doing some social things. I was pretty, pretty nerdy basketball wise and working out. That was my night out. I wanted to go over to Heyman Hall and uh, get some work in and get the cones out and do that sort of thing. Um, I think that sometimes the challenge could be is how do you communicate? Uh, and then maybe for the players, you know, like how like I had to listen to you. You were just my teammate. Uh, but I don't remember. I don't remember any any issues there. Um, you know, that it seemed pretty um, like a pretty easy transition. I learned a ton in my, in my two years. It was really honestly the last thing I wanted to do. Uh, I graduated in 88 with an undergrad in computer science and management information systems. I really wanted to get on with life and, and I wanted to go into coaching and I wanted to, um, you know, get a full-time job. And, uh, but John gave me this opportunity to go back and back to school and get a master's and, and get into coaching that way. And honestly, it was not my first choice, but it ended up being the best choice. And, I remember my mom, you know, we just talked about this recently. We were in the kitchen. I remember exactly where my dad was, where my mom was. And uh, my dad was adamantly opposed to a career in coaching uh, because he felt like uh, I wasn't going to be able to support myself. And that was really what he wanted me to be able to do. And, you know, computer science was really hot at that time. And uh, he actually chose my major for me and, and uh, I did okay at it. And, you know, he had decent grades and, um, and he wanted me to, you know, go get that full-time job that I worked so hard for and, uh, was going to pay well and support myself. And, but I knew it wasn't, wasn't what I wanted to do. And, uh, my mom said, go get that master's because once you have it, uh, they can never take it away from you and you'll be glad you had, glad you had it. And, uh, thankfully I, I chose that path to go get a master's and, uh, I got an MBA with a specialization in human resource management. Because I thought that most uh, would resemble coaching. That somehow that was my logic at that time. It has absolutely freaking nothing to do <laughs> with coaching. But at the time, I I reasoned you know, that's why I was going to go get an MBA. Because I thought I don't know what the hell I want to do. Go get an you know go get an MBA or a master's in something. And but that's what I did. It was a great decision. Like my mom said, you know I, I have this master's and you know that that uh, that high level of education. It, it probably all served me well, but more than anything, it, it got me down this path of, of being a coach. And all the way up until 2008, when my dad passed, um, you know, he asked me every year when I was when I was going to get a real job. <laughs> so, uh, but it's worked out pretty good. Did coaching? Did it feel right right at the beginning? And what I mean by this, that like, yes, this is where I'm going to spend my career. Yeah, you know, I tell you. Uh, when I learned that that, that was going to be my path, it was actually between my junior and senior year. Uh, do you remember the name Kathy Rush? Yes, absolutely. Um, right. So Kathy Rush basketball camps up in Doylestown, PA, that was the spot. Um, and I remember I did an internship in my major, uh, which was actually, I got an internship with the IRS and I was configuring systems and, you know, we'd get on the city bus, go over to Sixth and Arch and, you know, go into the office and, you know, have that sort of day where I was kind of, you know, told when I could have a break and very boring, very mundane. And, uh, and then at that same summer, so I did that for four or five weeks, that same summer, I did five weeks straight of Kathy Rush basketball camps. Now, the reason why you work Kathy Rush camps uh, was to work on your game. 
uh, you know, the teaching of the kids was a side side gig. <laughs> it was really about going and uh, playing against other camp counselors that were all great players from all the colleges. And we would get together and play these pickup games. And uh, we made $125 a week. We worked um, Sunday afternoon to, to Friday morning. When I tell you, we worked, you know, how many hours a day and we made $125 a week. It didn't matter. You know, it wasn't about the compensation. Um, but in that, what I learned at the end was how much I connected to coaching the players, not only uh, in the skill stuff, but when we got to the games and just the joy I got from seeing a young person, you know, work on something. And then we got to the game and, you know, the strategy or using of the skill and how it made me feel. And I, I felt like I had a calling. I felt like I had a draw uh, to it. And, and so when I got to, you know, to coach with John, it wasn't a question of whether I was trying to figure out what I wanted to coach. I knew I wanted to coach. Uh, and that Kathy Rush basketball camp experience is what uh, allowed me to to learn that about myself. Was it hard to close the door on playing or were you comfortable that, you know, because I know a lot of even when you're at that young age, you're still in shape. And, you know, did you ever get the pull that man, maybe I could give overseas a try or or once once that curtain closed, it was closed for you? It was very hard. Uh, I remember really struggling as a senior you know, um, that I didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to end, didn't want it to be over. You know, and I thought, why, you know, why does the NCAA tell us we can only get four years? Why can't we have longer? <laughs> I just wanted to keep playing. Um, especially the way my career ended. I, I, you know, we, we were in the NCAA tournament. We hosted the mighty Penn state, uh, at Heyman hall. We couldn't fit all their fans in the band, you know, cause we'd only could seat. I don't know, probably max capacity was a thousand mm-hmm. probably if that's even right. Um, and, and Susan McConnell, uh, who's now Susan McConnell Serio actually ended my career. Um, and so it was one of those things you just don't want it to end. Certainly don't want it to end, you know, at home on a, on a difficult loss. Uh, I'm not sure if it went to overtime, but it was a one point game, but anyway, uh, you know, that, that's, you just want to keep playing, but you know what? The overseas thing had zero appeal to me and I don't know, but it's just kind of how I grew up. Um, you know, we did move around a little bit, you know, but it was more, you know, in the States, I had no experience about traveling outside. And so I just couldn't fathom being in another country doing that. So I, I literally gave zero thought to, to overseas. I knew it was an option. I want to say maybe I had one or two smallish countries that, uh, there was an opportunity. Actually, one of my teammates, Kelly Greenberg, um, you know, went, I believe she might've played in Australia. Uh, so she did the overseas thing and, um, but it just it just was never appealing to me. And, and so the only option for me to stay in the game was coaching. Uh, and so I'm thankful that, that at least had that opportunity. And and I never, never did anything again with basketball as far as playing other than, you know, occasional, you know, three on threes, four on fours that you do while, like you said, you're a little bit younger and more in shape. Uh, now I just shoot a little bit, you know, 15 footers and that's about it. So after you you were two years at LaSalle as, a, as an assistant, correct? And then it goes, then you go to GW? That's exactly right. So along that line of seven years as an assistant coach, when do you, I think everybody that coaches thinks that they want to run their own program, but was there, when do you start to think, you know what, I, I not just want to do it. I feel like I'm ready. I I just feel like the, the opportunity uh, is going to come soon. Do you remember when you started to feel like, you know, you were ready for a head coaching job? 
Yeah, in that, so I was really fortunate that at, at George Washington University was a Philly guy by the name of Joe McEwen that hired me. And, and Joe knew Speedy and Coach Miller so well. And that's how I got my opportunity down there. I was so green uh, entering, you know, as a full-time assistant coach down at GW. Um, but we spent five years together, Joe McEwen and I did. And, um, you know, we, you know, Joe transformed that, that program and gave me opportunities probably about my third year into to being an assistant. I started getting opportunities because the program was so successful. We were ranked nationally that I got some opportunities from, from what I would consider more BCS, bigger schools, um, had maybe an opportunity to go to Arkansas and be in the SEC and as assistant coach. So I had to make a decision. Was that my next step or did I want to be a head coach from, from my experience with GW? And Joe was really, really good in communicating with me about, hey, be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, sometimes being a top assistant at a really good program like a GW, where we were recruiting well, we were having success. Sometimes that's better than going to be a head coach at a smaller program and, uh, you know, having a hard time finding success. You don't have the resources, et cetera. And so I was really mindful of that. And so it wasn't until after the, the, the fifth season, and at that point we were ranked sixth in the country, that I really started to think I should strike while the iron was hot. And, and uh, you know, um, an opportunity came for me to go uh, coach at Indiana State. Um, and when I look back on, on that, uh, I thought that I was, I was really in tune to the messaging from, from Joe McEwen. Um, you know, I think, you know, having more worldly experience now, I probably would not have made that move. Um, but it's, it's something that I did. I was 28 years old, uh, become a head, head coach at 28 was, was pretty young, I would say. Um, and, and no, I don't think I was ready, but I also believe this now I have assistant coaches that want to be head coaches. And they always question whether they're ready. Uh, Lindsey Whalen, you know, great player from the state of Minnesota, had a tremendous WNBA career, got the opportunity with zero coaching experience uh, to be a candidate for the University of Minnesota job. And I remember her calling me and we talked about it. And she said, Coach, do you think I'm ready? Uh, and the first thing I said is, um, first of all, there's no guy that would say, do I think I'm ready for this job? Guys think they're ready for every job. Uh, and so I was not going to let Lindsay Whalen think that she wasn't ready. Um, you know, but the, the truth of it is you're, you're probably never truly ready for what's about to come as a head coach. Um, but there are some times when you just need to go do it and go make your, go make your mistakes and take your licks, et cetera. If you're humble and you surround yourself with good people, in terms of your staff, you can get through those moments and you learn and you grow. And I thought Lindsay was, was definitely a person that, that would do that. And I think for, you know, for me, you know, you don't know what you don't know, um, really even living in different parts of the country. Uh, and so I learned a lot about my experience in going to be a head coach at Indiana State, just about who I am and what I stand for. And I think without those experiences, it's hard to get to the place that I'm at now, uh, which is I'm really happy in life and, you know, have a, uh, you know, a great franchise that I'm working for and we're finding success. So without those, the, that earlier journey of, uh, you know, kind of making decisions and maybe making some mistakes um, that, that, you know, you kind of get to, you know, the, this place that I am now. And I think no matter what it is, coaching or anything else, that's exactly what the journey of life is, you know, going and learning and, you know, when I got to the WNBA, you know, I had some experiences where I said, okay, I learned just what not to do. Those are just as valuable as learning what to do. Uh, and so that's, you know, that, that whole, that whole path 
Um, if I never became a head coach at 28, I probably wouldn't have learned as much as I did. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Minnesota Lynx head coach and GM Cheryl Reeve right after this. And we are back. Our guest this week on one-on-one Minnesota Lynx head coach and GM and LaSalle University product Cheryl Reeve. What was the biggest surprise when you become a head coach? Because I know I've talked to a lot of other people about this. And most of the time, the biggest surprise is the things that have nothing to do with basketball that you're now responsible for. What were what was the biggest eye opener for you once you're the point person in charge? Yeah, those things didn't bother me again, because I think, you know, Joe McEwen was so good at the non-basketball stuff. And, and, you know, I kind of watched him and I I knew that that was going to be a a part of it. Um, But you you don't realize how hard it is, you know, because you really feel like when you're sitting there uh, as an assistant coach and you're making suggestions and it seems so easy and everything is clear, your vision is clear. Uh, When you get to be a head coach, there's, you know, I, I find myself uh, vetting things in a way that I just didn't as an assistant coach. When I'm an assistant coach for the, for the national team, I'm reminded of how easy it is to be an assistant coach, how easy it is to, to be at practice and see something and say, well, this is exactly what we should do. And sometimes when you're a head coach, you maybe you overthink it. I speak it for myself. Maybe you overthink it. You, you know, you kind of go around around, you might get to the same answer, but you have to give a lot more thought before making a final decision than when you're a, an assistant coach. Um, you certainly sleep a lot less <laughs> as a head coach versus, uh, an assistant coach because you, you know, you're the responsibility for, you know, I think as assistant coach, your relationships are, are easier in terms of your daily, you're working them, you're, you're working out with them. You're a buffer. You're a, like, I, like I always find myself saying as, a, as an assistant coach, okay, what did Joe McEwen want? What, what did he want from this player? What did he want, you know, as a team, as far as identity? And my job was just to go execute it. I would go spend some time with players and skill workouts and, you know, try to, you know, kind of hype them up. And that's easy. And But as a head coach, you don't get to have those same relationships. You're not as in the trenches with the players in that way. Uh, and so I think managing personalities, you know, recognizing, you know, that you're, you're not going to treat them all the same, whether that's something people believe in or not. That's, you know, you can't you know, each individual is so different. And so I love the process of learning about an individual player and what motivates them and how I need to coach them. Uh, as an assistant coach, you didn't think that way. And so, you know, the difficulty, I, I think that's the thing you're not ready for is just how hard it really is. Cause I think sometimes when you show up to a game and you watch, you think the job is easy and it's just not. And, and that's what people always talk about, you know, just sliding one seat over, you know, the decisions that you make and that they're, you know, that, that ultimately it falls on you. And I know I'm the type of person that I want to be prepared. And so, you know, I probably make things harder than what maybe they really are. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think that's probably when I look at the difference between a, assistant and head, that would probably be it. You know, for me, it wasn't the extra stuff, um, you know, but you do have to deal with parents uh, as a college coach in a way that you don't as an assistant, that would be a challenge. Um, in our world, in the pros, it's agents. Um, but you know, life's about relationships and that's something I learned a while ago. And, and, and I think if you have the relationships and you spend the time on those things, everything else takes care of itself. So I'm curious, you're at Indiana state or even during the earlier years at GW, do you think you're going to stay in the college game? Do you think that's where your future or 
you know, as the WNBA is born and emerges, are you looking at that as that's where I eventually want to get? Yeah. You know, it happened fast for me, you know, of course, before the WNBA, you know, it's, it's only option is, is to coach in college. And, you know, I thought I'd, you know, be kind of sort of climbing. I would go to Indiana state and turn the program around, uh, get an opportunity at a, at a bigger job and, and go get that job and, and do, you know, hope, you know, be successful at that next job. But in, in, um, 2000, uh, that was the year that the Indiana fever, uh, we're an expansion team in the WNBA. And so obviously I was in Indiana. Uh, I became a season ticket holder of the Indiana fever and I would make that hour drive and go watch them play. And I remember absolutely love watching. I loved watching the WNBA and it wasn't very long. I, I want to say maybe I was a, uh, probably just a season that I was a season ticket member. And then in between um, the the first and second year, um, the pre-draft camp for the WNBA was in Chicago. And I remember Ann Donovan, who uh, just served as an interim coach in the first year for the Fever, because Nell Fortner was away coaching the national team. That was at a time when they were uh, making that position year round. So she had to step away from the Indiana Fever job. Uh, and so Ann Donovan was the interim coach. And then uh, Anne went from there uh, to Charlotte. So she had just gotten the job at Charlotte. She was doing the hiring. I remember contacting Ann and saying, you know, I'd love to have a chance to, to be in the WNBA. And I met her in Chicago and we sat down and talked and she said, okay, I got this opportunity. I only have uh, one full-time assistant. So the opportunity for you would be you know, to be a second assistant. It's not full-time uh, and it pays about $5,000. And, uh, and we'll provide you an apartment. And I remember thinking, you know, I hit the, I hit the mother load. Uh, I'm doing this thing. Now it was a difficult call to my family <laughs> to say, I'm going to leave the stability of college coaching and I'm going to go work for $5,000. My brother was, my oldest brother was beside himself. You have a master's degree. You have this education behind you. You're going to do what? <laughs> Uh, so I took that leap of faith. So I was very fortunate that I, you know, I, I connected with the game, you know, uh, in, in 2000 with the WNBA and it was so fortunate that Ann Donovan, you know, saw something in me to, to allow me to be a part of, you know, her first gig in, in Charlotte and, you know, it just, uh, you know, it just took off from there. Was there, was it difficult to go from coaching college kids to pros, uh, even, you know, you know, did you, was it easier? Was it harder? You know, how were the, what was the dynamic like? Matt, it was so much easier. Um, in that I always say, you know, to college coaches that, you know, that it's, it's really what you're after as a coach in that the things that you just referred to about all the extra stuff that you, that you focus on in college, you don't have in the pros. Um, you, you're, you're focusing on being, you know, the players are focused on being great players. Um, and, and so the, the, what makes it easy is how talented the players are. And so the things that I had to worry about in college coaching and trying to get players to do certain things and, you know, just put the ball in the hole, um, you know, the, the talent level is infinitely better, uh, in terms of what I was experiencing versus what I, um, what was coaching in college. And so that in and of itself makes the job easier. And then it just was a, you know, for me it was such a natural fit. Um, the ability to have relationships with players, uh, I just enjoyed so much. Maybe it's maturity, you know, the, you know, they're, you know, out of, out of college and into that next phase of life. And, 
uh, and I just, I just loved every bit of that. And so I found it to be an, an incredibly easy transition. Uh, I was fortunate that uh, I had good experiences as an assistant coach before I came, became uh, a head coach. It did take too long. It, it took 10 years for me to get an opportunity uh, to be a head coach in the WNBA, which is just absurd. Um, meaning, you know, that doesn't happen now. Uh, but as the league was kind of growing and forming its identity, I was caught in this uh, time in the WNBA that only men uh, or former former players in the NBA uh, were getting, they were more qualified than someone like myself in terms of the eyes of the decision makers. Um, you know, it just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen today. Uh, now it's, you know, the assistant coaches are getting the opportunities. Uh, and so it took me 10 years. And so I was really ready. I had already had a head coaching background. And so I was really ready. Uh, when my number was called uh, in, in Minnesota. And I, I, I look back on it, I, I don't know that there could have been anything better to happen to me than the WNBA. It's just such a, you know, fit like a glove, um, you know, type of feel for me. And I've never looked back. And uh, uh, like I said, it just, it gives me a lot of joy. That being said, you know, during those 10 years, did you think, you know, I'm sure you're frustrated at a certain point that head coaching opportunity is not coming. Do you think about, going back to college, if you could take over a program or was the WNBA such a good fit, you were willing to wait. Yeah. Not, not a second guess. I always said I was going to go down with the ship. Uh, Cause that was also at a time, you know, the WNBA, you know, there was a threat every year. Um, you know, it's not like it is today in terms of the, of the support and the way that women's sports are viewed, you know, just 10 years ago, there was a threat every off season of either the team that I was working for or the league as a whole uh, that would, would cease operations. There was always that threat. Uh, and I remember, you know, kind of, again, you know, your family is so supportive and, and you know, they don't like to see you experience those ups and downs. And uh, I remember kind of being at a crossroads and, and I thought, okay, I'm either in this and, and I'm just going to, whatever happens, happens, you know, or I got to get out, um, you know, because it was, you know, the, the ups and downs of it you know, was, was pretty hard. Um, and, and, uh, I remember kind of going, this is not a long decision for me. This is pretty easy. I'm in it. And I, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'm going, this is the ship I'm on. And this is, this is where I want to be. And, uh, and the same thing happened. You know, I don't remember feeling great frustration. Um, you know, I didn't look to be a head coach probably in my first five years in the WNBA. It was probably after my time in Detroit with the Detroit shock. Uh, with Bill Lambeer and Rick Mahorn, um, you know, in 2006, 2007, 2008, three straight years in the finals, you know, I did start to, you know, I did start to interview and I felt like my time uh, was close. And I think my college experience and, and the decision I made to go be a head coach at Indiana State, uh, you know, it allowed me to to understand that I needed to be very selective about where I went and the opportunity that that would provide me if I if I could be a little more patient. And, and I did that. And, um, you know, I was again, really, really fortunate with, uh, the timing, you know, it was actually the Detroit shock ceasing operations, um, in 2009, after the 2009 season that I remember kind of my aha moment in life saying, okay, I have a choice here. I can go be an assistant coach somewhere else and prop up some other guy, uh, you know, through my hard work as a grinder, you know, as an assistant coach or, you know, I can, I can sit and wait and say, I'm only a head coach and I'm only going to take head coaching opportunities. And that's exactly what I did. I remember thinking no more, I'm not going to go to Tulsa and go work for Nolan Richardson. I'm not going to do that. 
um, I, I felt I, I needed to, to uh, value myself um, in a way that um, was commensurate with the experiences that I had. And, and so I did that. And I was very, very fortunate that uh, the Minnesota Lynx at that time uh, were looking for a coach and, and it happened to work out for me. Yeah. What was the, you know, that door opening like, was it a, a quick process? Uh, you know, uh, what was the, the opportunity with Minnesota? I remember firing off an email to Roger Griffith, who, you know, through through my my time uh, in the league, you know, he was somebody that I felt like, uh, like, who do I want to work for? I didn't I didn't fire off an email to to each of the teams. It was more selective about, OK, where would I want to work? And it could be based on what I saw in the roster possibilities uh, or maybe work experiences. Um, and I remember just firing off an email saying, hey, because uh, at this particular time, Minnesota did not have a clear opening. They had an interim coach um, or maybe a coach that had a short term contract and they were they were getting ready. Maybe they were in the contract negotiations. And um, but I wasn't well versed in what was happening there. I just only knew I was not going to Tulsa. Uh, we, we were dealing with the the difficulty of losing that team in Detroit. It was a tremendous team, very close knit. And it was very difficult. Bill Davidson's passing uh, you know, sort of led to this. And, and, uh, so that was all, all difficult. So it was, I wasn't looking necessarily to, to run right into something else. And if it was going to take a couple of years or whatever, that was going to be fine. Uh, and so I just remember firing off an email and, and, uh, and then Roger said, Hey, you know, I might, I might have a situation. And, uh, next thing you know, you know, that probably happened in October. I was hired December 8th. Uh, so it moved, you know, I wouldn't say really, really quickly, but, but it enough, um, you know, where we had a couple conversations and they said, look, if this contract negotiation doesn't go well, you know, with this coach, you know, I might, I might have an opening. And so it was sit and wait and, and then got the call, you know, that they were going to be, you know, looking for a coach and, um, you know, had, had a good interview, went out to, to Minneapolis and, uh, um, really took to, um, Glenn Taylor, the owner, and then obviously, a relationship with Roger was one that, that, um, you know, seemed pretty easy. And, and thankfully, you know, they thought I was the person to, you know, try to guide them out of, you know, being a franchise that, you know, they, they were, they were good at times. They just could never put a complete season together. Um, they were just in the playoffs one time, you know, since 1999. And uh, so that was a decade. And, and so um, I think I had a vision, you know, for, for what the team needed. And, and thankfully, you know, they, they thought that I'd be the one to kind of help them get there. And get there. You did four WNBA championships, the first one in your second year in 2011. Uh, what's it like winning that first title? And then kind of as a follow-up to that, do all the titles hit differently because of situations and circumstance and personnel? Yeah. You know, I think about, um, you know, it, it obviously happened fast. I got there in 2010. Uh, I really wanted to be a playoff team. I really wanted to transform the Minnesota Lynx into uh, playing in a way that was sustainable in terms of success. And that meant uh, being much better defensively and rebounding the ball. They were actually always pretty good offensively, um, a little bit like the Timberwolves um, that that I feel like Chris Finch, the current coach, is is kind of establishing the culture of, of defending and, and rebounding better and defending without fouling, all those things that, that go with being a really good team. And uh, I had a number of years of experience in the league. I was sure I knew what, what it would take to, to be successful. And uh, we tried like, like heck in, in 2010 to be a playoff team. And we fell just short 
Um, and, and, you know, it, it, when you're in the moment and I'm, I'm a really sore loser, um, you know, highly competitive. And, and I just, I just don't handle losing very well at all. And, uh, we tried, you know, to be a playoff team, even though Maya Moore, uh, was a, was a senior in college that you know, was going to be in the draft. I just didn't think that way. I wasn't somebody that thought, well, maybe we'll just be bad in 2010 and we'll get Maya Moore and everything will be fine. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a playoff team and, and, and we were just a, um, you know, 1.1 seconds away from, from being that playoff team. Uh, it's a play I'll never forget. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes you have to experience failure before you can get to success. And I think it's one of the best examples in my career that without that failure, we don't get the opportunity to be in the lottery and we don't win the lottery, uh, and get, you know, Maya Moore, uh, without that difficulty in 2010. Uh, so it kind of helped shape us uh, a little bit and, and it's so quickly, you know, we went to, uh, you know, in 2011, the, you know, the best training camp uh, of my 20 years of coaching uh, when we added Maya Moore, but it wasn't just Maya Moore. Uh, it was Lindsay Whale and it was Simone Augustus, Rebecca Brunson, uh, Taj McWilliams Franklin. Uh, so it was a little bit in free agency, a little bit in trade that we got this group together that just instantly meshed and training camp was incredible. Uh, they, you know, the, the competing with and for each other was instant. Uh, every time we were together, it was just really special, whether it was a shoot around a game in the airport, wherever it was. And we were on a mission. This was a team that just kind of quickly, you know, kind of came together and, and, and gelled and, and, uh, you know, we got off to a great start and, and, but Minnesota had done that before they had gotten off to great starts and, and then something would happen and, and they just would be a non-playoff team. And so, Everyone around the league said, oh, yeah, there's Minnesota doing their their thing again where they get off to a great start. Just wait. They'll collapse. And I remember getting to the all-star break and we had we had four all-stars that year. And, you know, Simone Augustus was an all-star every year of her career. But this one was different. She said she walked in there and and, uh, you know, with with her her fellow all-stars and, you know, but she started kind of hearing the, the chatter, you know, like, oh, are you guys for real? I don't know. And and. And it just really motivated you know, the group that they wanted to show people that the Minnesota Lynx were for real. And we were fortunate and, and, you know, we had a, you know, what appeared to be a special team in training camp and it came to fruition and, 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 and won our, our first championship. And, you know, unfortunately for coaches, you're so into trying to win the next game that sometimes you don't get a chance to really recognize the journey and, and what you just did you know, it hits you, it hits you well after. Uh, and for me, you know, it was when in 2011, it's like, it's such a, you know, it's such a drug, if you will, you want to do it again. And, and so you right away go, okay, what else we need? What do we got to do to be able to win it again in 2012? And we got back to the finals and lost. And so then now you're pissed, you lost, and you want to get back. And we got back again in 2013 and, and won the championship that year. And, and, and yes, um, you know, each, each of the championships, uh, very, very different, very, very different because the journeys are so different. And that was the fun of it was, okay, what's it, what's it going to be this year? You know, what, what are our challenges going to be? How are we going to navigate them? What's our identity? You know, what are our leaders? How have they evolved? Uh, so each one, you know, it, it definitely, you know, felt, you know, felt a certain way and, and uniquely different from the others, but to be in the, in the finals, you know, five out of, uh, seven seasons, you know, was, was pretty incredible. And, and to win uh, four championships, um, it, it's not, 
when I was with John Miller and, and starting out my coaching career, it's certainly not something that you envision uh, was going to be your path. And, and that's the fun of it is, you know, that's why I would tell young people, you don't know where you're going to end up. You know, your job is to just, you know, take things as they come, work your tail off, be prepared. And when you get opportunities, you know, be ready to seize on them and, 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 you, and you hope things work out. I, I've been extremely blessed. The people I've been around, um, you know, I, it's a little bit by design, I hope in that I learned a lot from my time at LaSalle, surround yourself with good people, work really hard and good things happen to you. And that's what we tell all of our teams. That's exactly who we want to be. And that's what we want to do. And my final question for you, what have the last few years for women's basketball, for the WNBA specifically been? Because I feel like the last few years, the league has kind of taken a quantum leap into the national conversation from an athletic standpoint, but also from the, you know, the quest for social and racial justice. How big have the last few years been for it? Well, that's well said, Matt. Um, and, and we have, you know, I've been in the league a long time. Uh, the, you know, really, I would say I felt a little bit in 2016 uh, with with some social justice, so, so, uh, social justice, justice uh, reform issues that we we dove into with our team uh, around some police officer involved shootings. Uh, we saw great momentum, I think, you know, from that and then going into 2017 and uh, the CBA negotiation uh, that led to our 2020 season in the bubble. Uh, greater movement. Um, I think just people kind of, you know, getting a little more in tune to women playing professional sports. I think that's a little bit of it, you know, that, that, uh, you know, we're young in the game, we're new to the game in terms of professional sports, you know, societal norms, uh, shifting a little bit, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion now front and center, you know, this, this is all something that I think that, you know, women's sports are, are benefiting from. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think the fact is, is that uh, it makes no sense you know, for sponsors, you know, corporate partners to cut off, you know, sort of a sector of society, you know, that it's, it's you know, men's sports are the only place that women aren't leading. Uh, so men's sports, as much as Adam Silver has done in the NBA, men's sports are still far behind what's happening in society. You know, we can be generals in the military, we can be presidents of universities, even president of the United States, but not in men's sports. And I think there's a, there's a culture in men's sports that uh, is now, you know, starting to shift. Look at, look at football, the NFL, you know, and hiring more women's coaches, but there's not going to be real, um, say concrete uh, movement until uh, there's a woman in a place of, of actual leadership and and coaching a team. And uh, we have had general managers, you know, in baseball uh, that are, that are, that are women, um, so it's a sign of the times for sure. But I also think having 20 plus years behind us, uh, it took, you know, look at the NBA in the beginning, you know, the NBA and frankly, the NFL, uh, we can even talk about major league baseball in the beginnings, like what allowed men's sports to be successful uh, in the beginning in the NBA, people weren't watching uh, in, in the beginning. They needed to have the Harlem Globetrotters play uh, to get people to come to NBA games. So there's an evolution there. Look at how many people, look, what was the attendance watching some of the great players in the beginning of the NBA? You go back and look at those numbers and you think it's just not possible. You think it was always this way in the NBA or the NFL. Uh, same thing. The NFL needed high school football as their draw uh, in the beginning. Major League Baseball needed the media 
you know, the media decided Major League Baseball was big back in the beginning. And so the women don't have, you know, the benefit uh, of those things. They don't have the benefit of, uh, you know, uh, white men with billions of dollars that uh, have an interest in men's sports. Uh, so it's going to take a while for women's sports to fully evolve to the point where it is in men's sports. We don't have the benefit of tax dollars to build stadiums, um, you know, and it just, you know, I could go on and on and, and uh, but, you know, so the, through the course of my 20 years in the WNBA, I've seen exponential growth, not only in the game, that's natural. The evolution of our athletes are changing just like it did in the NBA. Um, when I first started in the league, we were probably more like, the NBA in the eighties, uh, Bill Lambeer often said that. Uh, and if you look at the game now, uh, and look at the NBA game from the eighties and how the way it's evolved, uh, athletically bigger, faster, stronger, it's a really fun evolution to watch. And we're certainly seeing that, uh, in, in the women's game. So, um, I agree, Matt, you know, there, the growth has been uh, really incredible to be a part of, uh, the interest, the ratings, uh, you know, the ESPN's partnership, a 10-year deal we signed in 2014, um, you know, that that kind of, you know, I think ESPN can do a hell of a lot more. Uh, it's not good business, you know, I don't think to, to exclude women, uh, whether it's in the corporate world or uh, in the sports world, there's money to be had. And, and I think people are starting to realize that. And as ESPN's ratings are soaring, uh, there's greater sponsorship opportunities, uh, hopefully greater TV rights deals. And once we get those things and the benefit of those things, then you're going to see a whole nother exponential leap uh, for, for women's sports. Show sure, Reeve, this was so much fun. Thanks so much for taking the time. Well, I appreciate you, Matt. I'd like, again, I'd, I'd love to, to be on KYW and, and uh, that connection to Philly makes me really happy. Thank you so much, man. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Cheryl Reeve for being our guest this week. Reeve, of course, a South Jersey native, LaSalle University product, and head coach and GM of the WNBA's Minnesota Lynx. Now, if you like the show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next time when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.